Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the pod. Today we have our regular cohort of hosts. It's me, Stefan. We got Lois in here and we got Mo. How are you guys doing today? Super excited to talk about the topics we planned for today. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, so t- this episode is a little bit different than the others. You might notice a new name. We're going to be talking about browsers, front-end technology, browser extensions, and we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence. These are the four things that we are most passionate about. That's why we pick them. And we're excited to share things that we found either interesting or insightful in these areas. So with that said, let's get started with browsers. Specifically, the thing in the docket today is about multiplayer browsers and real-time collaboration of tabs and web pages. And I think, Mo, you were the one that added that. So do you want to talk a little bit more about that? I did add this to the browser bucket and because this is something that I've actually been thinking about for a long time and it interests me and I'm super excited to see where a feature like this in web browsers go. Now, multiplayer browsers, they allow multiple users to, to work in the browser at the same time in real time. So that allows and enables collaboration in the web pages that coworkers and teammates are using in a team or an organization. In real time, you can collaborate on editing documents, reviewing code. This is a big use case, I think. Filling out forms. You could also do real-time collaboration with customers to provide like real-time customer support and demos. So I would send you guys over the link and we would be in the same browser tab essentially. And whatever I do on the web page, that would reflect on your screens and so on. When you were talking about that, it reminded me of this thing that I used a super long time ago. Like I think maybe when I was freshman in college, I think it doesn't exist anymore, but it was a way for you to watch things with your friends. And the way that it worked was you would log into their website. They would spin up a instance, like a VM, and then they would stream the VM to you via your web browser. And you can interact with Chrome browser in a head full fashion through your browser. Right. And where is this VM instance running? Is it on one of the clients and then it's streamed sort of? No, it's in the cloud. This is with video streaming rather than streaming DOM updates and DOM events. The video streaming route is the easy to implement, but in terms of hardware and computational resources, I think it's just it's, it, it doesn't scale as well. And I think it's a lot more expensive to, to stream all that data. And... Yeah, actually, so regarding the streaming infrastructure and about how scalable it is, we can actually borrow a little bit from the gaming industry. The gaming, the gaming industry is the pioneering of this whole streaming with user input. Yeah, with multiplayer even. You have, you have PS Plus trying the same effort. You have Stadia, which completely got shut down recently by Google. You also have Xbox. And I think the only one that's standing right now it's actually Steam. Steam is actually the only one that actually still managed to do all the streaming, multiplayer co-op streaming in a decent manner. I think this is because they invest very heavily into infrastructure, the core infrastructure of the game itself, actually. So Steam invests into API that allow game to leverage the streaming infrastructure. So it still requires integration with the game itself to have decent quality streaming. How can we apply that principle then back to browsers? Does this mean that websites themselves, let's say LinkedIn, let's say Google, YouTube, they actually need to somehow be cognizant that the streaming could be happening and actually tailor their engineering to suit that? 
it seems like for the browsers, the websites don't really need to know. Yet for gaming, like Stadia and all these other kind of like remote viewing devices or hardware or whatever, what have you, platforms, they're all dying except for Steam because Steam is the only one where the games actually integrate with Steam really well. So why is it that for gaming, this is a must, but it seems like for browsers, it's not really necessary? I don't think so. I think it's will eventually want to be. We truly want to be multiplayer. It's same multiplayer, but it's just doing bare bone kind of top level integration, but not actually integration with an application. So can you give an example in a game where they can harness that true power of multiplayer that you're talking about? Let's say uh, let's say Tekken. That's it's a fighting game. You can invite another player into your crew session to fight them, and without the knowledge that you are inviting someone else into the game, right? If the game doesn't know that, it's going to have to implement everything on its own implementing all the input synchronizing and also all of the invitation. But then with the Steam API, it can now leveraging Steam existing player base, right? Now, oh, I can invite my friend from Steam, come join me in this game and fight me. There's so many fragile pieces that if that API doesn't exist, the whole experience is gone. They will have to like manually invite people. They have to also set up their own server to do, to reconciling input. And so with the API from Steam, all of that abstract away. And so you have, so the developer can now just focus on the game, right? They can actually literally make a single player game and now just use API to extend it into two player. So it's interesting, Louis, if we extrapolate what you just said into browsers, then that would mean that LinkedIn starts as a single player experience and they need to talk to the Chrome API to establish a multiplayer experience. Whereas what really is happening is the other way around where Chrome or a browser is the one injecting a multiplayer experience into an already existing single player experience. Similar to, I, I know that there are games out there, like for example, the original Super Smash Bros, which are single player and they're not networked but then people have created mods that can actually inject multiplayer experiences of the game. So maybe that analogy of Tekken and so on, it's a little bit different, right? I would even I would argue that webpages itself essentially are multiplayer experience already, right? By itself. When you host but something... The interacting of the web page, right? That's the single player part. Yeah, the interaction is still, you have one player using the webpage. Comparing to the analogy of Tekken has to re-implement everything themselves, right? That's why we've seen this scheme, by the way. So LinkedIn, you were synchronizing LinkedIn contact with your contact book, right? With some kind of central like, contact system so that now you can use the same LinkedIn contact page to contact other people that you, that is like a proxy, right? To contact someone from LinkedIn, between LinkedIn and kind of maybe Google Hangouts. Right? The analogy comparing multiplayer browsers and multiplayer games, I think they're two different things. And I don't think that... Although I think it would be better and more powerful if there was like specific integrations so that the website could hook into this multiplayer experience and know that it's happening. I think that could be beneficial, but I don't think it's necessary to make the experience good for all parties. What's the difference in the analogies to you? Like um, why is the game... Okay, when you go into a game and you want to play with a friend, the only thing on your screen is that game. There's nothing, there's no... Chrome, there's no layer outside of it that can allow you to communicate and collaborate 
with your friend other than having it be in the game. If you want to play Super, Super Smash Bros. with your friend, he has to load a character into your game. You know what I mean? It ha- th- that deep level integration is necessary there. But with a web browser and websites, okay, if I wanted to make GitHub collaborative and multiplayer, if we go to github.com, but github.com, it has another layer on top of it, which is the browser. And from the, that layer is where I can send a friend request or an invitation to my coworker to come and join me in github.com. There's that extra layer that sits on top of the website. Let's say I have three users looking at the same GitHub screen, right? Mm-hmm. So what is the process? So how would they use it differently? If the web application itself are not aware that there are three, three distinct users, then essentially it's just one person streaming the application to three, two other person. And that person is the guy, is the person mainly going to do the commit, PR commit and so on. And sure, they can share the interaction, but essentially they're still very single player. One person would still it, go down and press the merge. Yeah, one person would be doing the action or I would say, Stefan, you do this action. Lewis, you do this action. Okay, it's very explicit in that sense. But the benefits from this is that provides, if everybody's looking at the same thing, any one of us could go and copy paste any of the text, interact with the document, instead of just like looking at a screen where you can't really interact with the application or website you're looking at. But with this approach, even though there would be one designated person that, that commits the PR or whatever, there's still benefit to them because just being physically present there in that web page, having a cursor, being able to look around, being able to scroll around and interact with the web page is beneficiary, I think, and provides lots of value. This is one of the main things I think this sort of feature has over traditional screen sharing is the ability to interact. And like how many times in a screen sharing interview or call with somebody the, you're watching somebody screen mirror, screen share. And so many times you have to tell them, Hey, can you go back? Oh no, no, not there. No, scroll down a bit up. Yeah. Yeah. Click that button in the top right corner. You can avoid in a multiplayer yeah, yeah. browser, avoid all that's that. What, that's what I'm saying. I, I agree with the argument that screen sharing could be more interactive. Screen sharing or collaborative session could be more collaborative, could be more interactive. What's interesting about what you guys were talking about is that I think the reason why the web page understanding that this is happening is important is because what we're essentially doing is we are creating an interface in which we have on the front end potentially 20 people, right? Interacting with a web page. Let's say it's the GitHub create a new issue web page. Okay. So 20 people log into this thing and then now they're able to interface with the DOM. Let's say it's this magical experience and they're all getting like a peer to peer like diff of the DOM and they can edit text fields. They can click buttons and so on and so forth. The issue is you are completely missing the integration with the multiplayer world of GitHub because you're presenting one user's experience to 20 people. But that, but potentially those 20 people have 20 different accounts on GitHub. So I think this is a really good first step into true multiplayer web browsing. But I think the next step is what the gaming world already has, which is we have 20 different controllers and those controllers are allowing us to control this multiplayer experience that we all see together. 
but we all have different kind of users on the back end of the experience. And that makes things a lot more powerful. Imagine when we're creating a GitHub issue, like when I type stuff, GitHub knows that it was me that typed, like, let's say the title. And then maybe like, for example, with Google Docs, right? That's exactly how it works, where we all see the same thing. But because Google knows we're all different users, potentially I'm the only one that's able to edit. But Mo, you're the only one that can comment. Like you're able to unlock this whole thing on the back end while still presenting a view in the multiplayer. That's a great point. The only way to get past that level is to have those deep integrations with the websites. 100%. I think we'll have these no deeper integrations and everybody will just be looking at the same, the one users through their, through their backend user model. But I think eventually it will, and it should get to the point where there are deep integrations with so, the websites. I think many people have attempted it. Many people have actually attempted it. Like even when the first extension I built with Plasma was called Mice. Is allowing you to mirror input from an extension to another person's computer, essentially mirroring the mouse. Because sometimes one person is streaming and the other person can hey, pause, I need to go to, to the bathroom. Right? But then they rather just, hey, you, I'd rather use my mouse and click and quickly go than having to say, hey, 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 pause, stop it. The synchronization, right? Yeah. If you both pause at the same time, that's a lot easier with an extension rather than asking someone, like, okay, three, two, one, okay, we both click. Yeah. So we're talking about the lack of. Deep integrations with the websites will have this limitation on, for example, the user accounts and who sees what. Okay. But this only applies if the DOM, if the web page is being mirrored, but there are other multiplayer experiences, browser multiplayer experiences in other browsers that sort of work around this issue because they're not actually mirroring the DOM. They're just mirroring the tabs. For example, Sigma OS also has a browser multiplayer experience. They're called shared workspaces. You share a list of URLs with your collaborators. And that's what it is. It presents Sigma OS. Well, you create a shared workspace, invite other users that are using Sigma OS, and then you essentially have the same tab bar, or in their case, it's a vertical tab list of tabs. And if I can add new tabs to the shared tab list, and then you guys will also get the same tab pop up on your screen in your browser. If you can mark it as done or close it, and it'll be closed for you guys as well. So let's say we're working on a GitHub PR. We all want to do a collaborative re review of it. Everybody's rendering their own web pages yeah. on their own clients. The Sigma synchronize the, uh, the scroll as well, or only the I tab position? How do you know if you're not streaming a one-to-one -one the same web page? Then how do you know how much if scrolling by 50 pixels in my web page will look the same scrolling 50 pixels in your web page? Because we're signed into different accounts, we have different privileges, so the UI could change. Oh, the thing I was well thinking about maybe feature you click on a thing like a, an element. Let's say it's H1 it'll take everyone to that H1. Um, so this would work well with, I don't know, if you have some sort of structured like blog post or documentation or something like that. Or let's say it, you, it has, that element has a unique ID, right? And then you just see if other people also have that unique ID within their tab and it scrolls to that. Yeah, actually what, what you bring up makes a lot of sense actually, because for example, for example, when you go to a link that has a resource fragment, so there you could, specify an ID that you want the web page to scroll to when it loads, or you could also specify certain patterns of text. I don't really wonder about the use, really wonder about the usefulness of multiplayer to be honest. 
I am skeptical about it. I just write down one of the points that we could talk about is we could discuss or try to come up with use cases or areas where this would be useful. So I think one place could be in is what we were talking about is code reviews on github.com, for example. Another use case is watching Netflix or YouTube, synchronizing Netflix or YouTube with your buddies, right? It doesn't have to be all work and or organizations and teams. It could be just the same YouTube video, synchronizing it with your buddy or scrolling the same Twitter feed. I understand that you can list some use cases to think about that, but I want to circle back to think about the history of why this has not been made. Like features, like the feature of multiplayer browser, right? Sounds, we have WebRTC, right? So you can have one-to-one -one session. You can also have multiplex RTC as well. So you can have multi, like, Frame, yeah, Figma, right? Figma has multiplayer on their application, right? Not the website. The entire platform has the ability to do multiplayer, right? Chrome has the account system embedded inside with Google, and they have all the infrastructure to make such a thing. So my skepticism came from the fact that not just about the usefulness of such a feature, but about what had been tried in the past by all the other browsers, right? And why have it not taken? Why is it not sticky? Does it feel like this kind of idea should be around for one? I feel yeah, like I think also a framework for building browser extensions should have been a thing, but yet yeah, it wasn't and it became incredibly useful. I think that the addition of SaaS makes it so that our browser, what we're having to interface with 10 different SaaS apps to do one job. And when you're working with other people and with the rise of remote, I think these are a forcing function to have us go down this route, Lewis. The reason we haven't seen it is just because either we work together on WebRTC, it's a, it's not fun to work with. And I think it takes a very special person to build something like this when we're just purely a WebRTC. And I think that the headwinds are going in a direction where WebRTC is getting easier to work with, remote is becoming more popular. The people who have implemented this before weren't, for the most part, weren't actual web browsers. Lots of browser extensions have implemented this sort of feature and there are lots of browser extensions out there today that do this sort of thing but with a browser extension you're not getting the full sort of resources that you are from a browser what um, are the security implications of such a system this is basically team viewer but at a level of the browser right? there are different ways to do it that we discussed already there's sharing a one-to-one -one screen there's sharing just the tab and each person renders their own web page for that tab I think fully sharing one-to-one -one the screen is the same thing. So what is the security implication of this? So we know that TeamViewer spawned a whole host of phishing, like Scammer, who use the software to take control over people's laptop machine. Right. So if you have a multiplayer experience, I wonder though, right? The wondering here is that if implemented without a security scheme, an account scheme similar to AWP2, what would be the security implication? One of the things, like you can change passwords, right? You can go to the settings, you can click change password, just change the person's password right and then there. The other thing is, I don't know, right click, inspect element, add some JavaScript. Now that JavaScript runs on every other person's machine if you guys are doing the DOM version of the streaming, right? Yeah, there's a whole host of things. Like you would definitely need that other person to be a trusted person that you trust not to do like random sketchy stuff, right? It might be the case that most web applications might have to create a sandbox right. mode for themselves. Imagine GitHub, let's say, hey, let's let me create a sandbox mode so that you can invite 10 customers here. All good. The same with Figma. Figma does the same thing too for the drag and drop space, right? For their kind of white space. So each white space 
is like a playground where everyone is welcome to come in. But you can make it into a very, uh, a very harmless sandbox. So someone can do whatever they want, but not put you by destroying it. Basically. Yeah. The thing is that the browser is a sandbox of open system, right? So now they can explode. So they cannot destroy your own machine, but they can still destroy your bank, right? Assuming you're sharing, your, you're yeah. streaming your bank account. Right. They can now destroy your bank, which is actually the root of your financial your root, yeah. right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because everything is on the web these days. So yeah, who, actually, who cares if you hack my computer? I don't like, but I care if you hack my cloud accounts, my, or my AWS account and steal all my credits or my bank account and stuff like that. Discord has this feature of a streamer. When you start streaming, it has a streamer mode. So it start hiding information that might, it start like hiding or obfuscating information. Direct messages and stuff like that. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Like. Maybe websites are going to start having like multiplayer like section mode. And then now it's going to start like not, you're not able to like go into the settings anymore and stuff like that, or like hey. disable it. You know what? Hey people, you heard it here first, right? Most web application might want to offer a sandbox mode. One of the, well, the target use case would be for multiplayer to secure multiplayer, right? Okay. But another case is that, Hey, for example, if a bank person is here, want to kind of share some or sharing the session someone else in a secure manner. Why? Okay, sure. Let me talk about the sandbox stage for the bank so that anything in here is just for showing. Not, it's not going to ruin you. This exists for a lot of websites that handle salary information for employees. So when yeah. I work at big companies, would go to this website and they have this toggle that says toggle numbers. And if you don't toggle that, everything is just an asterisk. So you see all the data and everything's like out the same way. But all of the numbers are hidden because when you're with your colleagues or whatever, you don't want to, you don't want them to see how much money, much more you're making than them. You know? So unless you know, kind of be a little bit cocky and you turn it on and just to show them, you know, that's, I guess that exists in that realm. And yeah, we might start seeing that more. And next up is front end tech. So we're going to be talking about playgrounds in front end tech. Uh, Louis, you have a tweet here. Yeah. This tweet's from Versa uh, CEO. He saw him easily talk about a bunch of playgrounds and he say, the tweet is underrated, wrote tool. Playgrounds, and they give a, a couple of examples. You can play around with Rust language and see the compiler run it on the web browser. Yeah, so I think this is an interesting kind of idea of making the playground. If you have a product, it might be crucial to make a playground to showcasing how easy your product is, especially for developer. Especially if you're making developer tool or API. What is a playground? So a playground, at least in the sense that is in this tweet, in the context of this tweet is a web page that you can access online that you can test out the, the, the API. And everything must be able to run inside a web page. That's a key idea. For example, the Rust compiler, they make a WebAssembly compiled to Rust run and it run on the browser. So that now you can go onto this playground, write some Rust code, it can compile the code and run it and show you the result and show you how elegant or how cool some of these Rust API languages is. What if the code is being compiled on the client or the server, right? This is still the playground. The important part of the playground is the playground itself, right? You can just open a web page and start playing with code, right? You don't have to set up a de development environment. You don't have to download any libraries or SDKs. You don't have to set up any API keys or stuff like that. I've seen this uh, going back to gaming. Games like demos of games are run in Unity web uh, instead of like downloading the game and then like trying it out and stuff like that. It's all in on the website. I think that's 
the thing I can think about the most is like, because the general idea behind these playgrounds is what other applications that you had to download have you seen a demo of on the web before you downloaded them? That's kind of generic statement that I'm thinking in my head right now. I'm curious, applying this kind of like query in your head, like other than programming languages, other than dev tools, what else is there? Let's say you only get, you only buy something when you actually try it, right? That's why Costco had this. Essentially, that's the same thing. Right. Same idea. Yeah. A startup founder was talking about this sort of concept and idea for advertising his other projects. So, for example, he has one main product, one main startup, and then around that, he builds micro SaaSs, right? Micro tools, small tools. And he just builds those as like a marketing funnel to his main product. What his first approach to this was on his micro products, he would just have a link at the bottom of it. He would have a link or in the footer, he would have saying, Hey, you should check out my other product, blah, 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 and a link to it. But then he realized what converts users a lot more is have an actual demo of the product at playground in a sense of the product in the footer instead of a link that takes him to another web page. This way it allowed his users to not have to go through the friction of opening another web page. I know that sounds super simple, but lots of the times we don't do lots of things because we don't want to press on another link. And because there's that friction, there's that context switching. We don't want to do that. But having it, having whatever you want to advertise embedded in the actual experience, I think it's the same idea as these software playgrounds. Yeah. Another area that this idea applies to, I think is for using your products or just ads in general, like game ads do this sometime as well. Instead of just having an ad, a banner that takes you to the app store to download the game, you can just play the game in whatever other app or website you're in at the same time. Uh, Lewis, have you worked with that much before? Being able to actually make the ads interactive and people can play your game before they click download? It's actually a whole SDK behind for that with Unity and oh, wow. Unreal. And essentially the idea is you make a level, you make a demo level and you ship just that level. You ship a bill just a level to your user. And you can pack that build, you can pack that special build into an app, into a small little app. Get try before buy is if the product is really good, then it's and it treat people as good. But for example, you've seen a bunch of these kind of spamming games, much of very low quality game. Ad is actually very compelling. Yeah, they make like a beautiful 3D rendering and all that stuff. And then when you actually download it, it's like a 2D pixel art. Sometimes. The freaking art on the ad doesn't even match up with what the game they have. Which is crazy. For them, like playgrounds wouldn't be very effective, right? So I guess like a prereq, you have to have a really good product because otherwise... I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. So moving on, talking about a little bit regarding extensions was here you put a thing about, and by the way, we're talking about browser extensions, but also potentially other kinds of extensions of software. Louis, you talked about extension background service worker persistent runtimes. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So for more context, background service worker is a way to run CPU intensive computation for an extension. When you want to run a very intensive job, you want to send that job to this thing that is dedicated to this kind of computation. And that's called service worker. I was talking with myself, community member in the plasma community. And one member, a very active person, maybe, he posted a GitHub repo with a bunch of techniques that's made to ensure that microservice worker 
was still alive and not be killed. And so in this repo, there's a bunch of technique inside that show how we can keep this thing alive. Yeah, because it dies on its own. That's an issue right now with Chrome. Yeah, Chrome cleanup is service worker every five minutes or so if it's idle. So I think the right. trick is basically to keep it not idling. The trick in this kind of repo is basically they use a tap API and the scripting API to continuously injecting content strip. Okay, isn't another way to keep a service worker alive is to just dispatch events onto it? For example, one method that lots, one method I know that was popular for keeping a service worker alive was keep a, a port open to a content script in another tab. And just before the service worker is going to die, send a message to the service worker from the content script. And that way the on message listener will get activated. And then that keeps the service worker that sort of restarts the timer of how long the service worker is going to stay That's alive. essentially one, one, one way that he does it. It basically injecting content strip, creating a little a port, and continuously sending ping then over. It also, so one, one tricky part though, is, right, is you cannot really measure when it's going to die. That's another thought in here. I think that's a bug. I think that is actually a bug. So the five thing by definition and by the way it's meant to be, a service worker maximum is supposed to stay alive for five minutes. But I think... It dies. Also, another thing that's defined in the docs is that if it hasn't been used in 30 seconds, it will die. So if yeah, idly. Yeah, if it's idle for 30 seconds, then it will die. But if you keep keep kind of pinging it every 10 seconds or every 29 seconds, the it'll keep staying live, but for a maximum of five minutes. So how do we get around the five minute limit? So here's how we do it with the Plasma framework is we just went one of the port, right? Was forcefully disconnected. It sent an event to content strip to reload the web page. When you reload the web page, that also re-inject the content script that refresh the runtime. Oh, so there's a refresh and there's a reload involved in this process. Yes. You have to reload either the web page for the content script to be re-injected mm-hmm. or reload the whole extension. Can you just... Reinject the content script with the, like the the scripting API, the Chrome yeah. scripting well, no. execute script. The problem is that API can only run from the background script, but the background server is dead already. Right, you're right. Yes. So the so only way have... to reinject the content script would be for the browser to do it, which is to reload a web page. And does it create a new web page, or does it use one of the user's current existing tabs? Exi- yeah, existing one will be fine. As long as, just as long as that web page is one of the web pages where a content strip has to be injected by the manifest script, and when that happens, and if that content strip is opening a new port, mm-hmm. then the background service will be a wicked. What if you, uh, if you took that content script and then you created a new tab? Yeah. For the moment, we can, like, the platform runtime can literally show, like, uh, an example page even, or some kind of page both to keep the service worker alive and also to show some like a sign of life or some kind of I don't know. So Mozilla made that they made the web package that allow you to run a web extension in dev mode. And the way they do all the reloading is by injecting an extension into Chrome. So beside your extension, they inject a secondary extension that is MV2 that has background service pages that do all the monitoring and stuff for you. And it works with Chromium. Yeah. 
and I think Chrome too. But the idea that they spawn an instance of Chrome, they inject two extensions, one for our reloading and one for your extension. Yeah. And the extension essentially do all the stuff that we were talking about. Interesting. And it also, it does this thing where apparently an extension can tell another extension to our reload. Yeah. So they leverage that. Yeah, there's so much, there's so many things that you just, I work with browser extensions every day. That's what I do. So it's always awesome to learn and hear about new things in even small niches. Sort That's of humbling, I guess, too. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you in two weeks with another episode. Take care. Two weeks. <laughs>